Welcome, everybody, to the weekend. We are in the third message in our series where we're talking about how do you learn to live a life of faith in a society that's increasingly becoming more and more secular. And this weekend, I want to start out by asking you a question. And the question is, what would you do if you found out that your inheritance, your accomplishments, your power, your position in life was rumored to be coming to an end, that the enemy, so to speak, was at your doorstep, what would be your response to that? Well, Belshazzar, who was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, was a co-regent with his father, Nabonidus, who was ruling an empire down in Arabia while Belshazzar was in charge of Babylon and had his residence at the palace. And rumor was that the Medes and the Persians were encroaching and taking over. In fact, about 50 miles away, they had already defeated part of the Babylonian army. But for Belshazzar, being holed up in Babylon was a good thing because Babylon was well, well fortified, had incredible walls. It was impregnable. Not only that, but they had enough supplies in Babylon to outlast any army. So there is this sense that Belshazzar feels relatively safe, though there are threats out there. And what do you do when you're in a situation like that? I mean, you don't want the people who are part of your government, your nobles turning against you, and then you end up with mutiny. So he decides that in face of all the threats and rumors and potential destruction of his empire, to throw a party. And it was a wild party. Listen to this description in Daniel chapter 5. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken for the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups taken for the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. While they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Pretty brazen, don't you think? Take the very utensils that were used in the worship of Yahweh, God, and then turn around and use them to toast demons, your gods. Of course, Belshazzar would have thought of Yahweh as a weak god. After all, his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had raided God's temple and taken his things. But it was still rather brazen, rather foolish. You say, what does that have to do with us today? Well, I was thinking about what was going on there in Babylon, and I thought to myself, you know, in many ways, it reminds me of what's going on in our nation and in our world today. There's a, a brazenness. There's a rebellious kind of cocky attitude that is in our culture today that is very anti-God and anti-Bible and anti-true Christianity. And I think to myself, how is it that people don't have a fear of God? And how is it that we're so 
willing to kind of raise our fist up towards God, so to speak, and redefine what we believe is significant and what we believe life is ultimately all about. As I've been wrestling with that and doing some reading and thinking, I came across a man by the name of Ernest Becker. He's passed away now. He was a cultural anthropologist, and he was a Pulitzer Prize winner. He wrote a book called The Denial of Death. And this atheist, this cultural anthropologist, this brilliant man, said that human beings cannot face the finality of death. It robs them of any sense of significance and meaning to life, which I think is true. I mean, if you believe that you die and that's it, that's a frightening thought. I mean, what does life then mean? Where you find meaning in life, where you find significance. And Becker suggested that we human beings come up with three kinds of solutions that we pursue. He said one of those solutions is what he entitles the romantic solution. What he means by that is we try to find our significance and our meaning in sensuality, in love relationships, in sex, thinking that somehow that will give us some sense of significance, that will give us some sense of fulfillment. Did you notice in the passage of Scripture that Belshazzar brings all of his wives and all of his concubines in and all the nobles? And I think there was a lot of naughtiness going on at that party, if you know what I mean. I look at our culture today, and I see what's happening, and we are so sensual, we are so sex-obsessed. It's like everywhere you turn, it's in your face one way or another. And you get this sense that our culture is indulging its desires, thinking that somehow if I can just get enough out of relationships, get enough out of sensuality, get enough out of sex, that somehow it will fulfill me, somehow it will allow me to forget everything else that's going on around me. And so the door is wide open. Nothing is taboo anymore. In fact, the newest rage is known as polyamorous love. And that is, you know, you can have three or four people that all agree with each other that they can be in love with each other. And everybody's okay with that. And I can have a relationship with this person and that person, though my primary relationship may be with this person, but this person doesn't care. They understand, they've agreed that it's okay for me to do that, just like I agree it's okay for them to have all these other relationships as well. It is the rage, it is the new thing that you're hearing about in our culture these days. I guess if you don't believe in life after death, maybe all that's left to do is live life to its fullest as you think that should be. Indulge yourself. A second solution that he suggests, which seems like the opposite, is a religious solution. Did you notice in the story that uh, Belshazzar calls for the utensils that were used in the worship of Yahweh, and he fills them full of wine with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines, and they drink toasts to their demonic gods that they believed in and worshiped behind the dumb idols of stone and iron and wood and silver and gold, where he learned in the book of Deuteronomy are demonic forces. And so there's this sense in which, you know, they have a religion that they worship uh, their gods through. And religion, by the way, means man's search for God. It's something I create out of my mind and my thoughts about why I'm here and how I got here. And and then I use that religion to try to find some sense of significance and meaning. And that certainly is part of our culture today. 
we live in a very religious and very spiritualistic culture. We have invented ways for ourselves to feel good about ourselves so that if we do believe there is some kind of life after death, we can assure ourselves that we will qualify. And oftentimes it comes down to being nothing more than true to myself, trying to live a decent and good life, a better life than most. Somehow that's going to qualify me. And just like Belshazzar took the things of God and profaned them, I see it happening so much in our culture today. I've heard people so often say things like, well, my God would never, or my God would allow, and then they proceed to fill in that gap with whatever they believe should be socially or morally acceptable. That if I view this, this thing as acceptable, then my God views it the same way as well. Or they'll take God's word and edit God's word and say, you know, the Bible's not infallible. Human beings were involved in writing the Bible. And, you know, sometimes they inserted their own uh, opinions chauvinistically or, you know, conservatively. But you've got to kind of edit that stuff out and really just look at what Jesus said. And Jesus, you know, Jesus is accepting of all religions and all faith and all forms of sexuality as long as you don't hurt somebody. And so we hijack the word of God, we hijack God himself, and then use that to create our religion that we believe will give us some sense of significance. And there's a third solution. Becker doesn't use this term, so I'm going to use it. It's a materialistic solution. Did you notice that they drank uh, toast to uh, idols of silver and gold and iron and uh, wood and bronze? I mean, our culture worships material success. Our culture worships whatever will make us feel significant by the use of our dollar or our abilities uh, to be successful in, in life. And somehow we think that if I'm just successful enough, if I accumulate enough, if I have enough, I will be happy. Now, what is that, what is that really all about? Well, it's all about this whole idea of losing myself right? And to lose yourself means to give yourself up or over to something, thinking that that something will then give you that sense of significance. So we live in a culture then and a society where we're called to kind of lose ourselves to sensuality or lose ourselves to social media or lose ourselves to our career or lose ourselves to some kind of addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol or porn or whatever it is, lose myself because I've got to numb myself to this sense of significance that I'm searching for. Because if it's, excuse me, if it's outside of God and outside of the Bible, I've got to come to terms with what that's going to be like, what that's going to feel like. That's the world that, that we swim in. That's the world that we live in. That's the world that you're raising your children in. That's what they face constantly. Tim Keller uh, puts it this way later on in one of his writings that I just want to read it to you. He says, without God's glory, we have no glory. Without God, we don't exist. We know that, and that's really at the root of all society. And then commenting on this story we're looking at, he goes on, he says, the wild party shows us this desperate sense of significance and our failure to find it. In other words, the wildness of our culture today, 
just shows how desperate we are to find significance, but to try to find it in all the wrong places, and ultimately it leaves us in despair, and ultimately it fails us. Well, the writing was on the wall, and Belshazzar is about to see it. Here's what it says. Suddenly, they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. Mine would too. <laughs> his knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means to be dressed in purple robes of royal honor, and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed and his face turned pale. His nobles, too, were shaken. <clears throat> I mean, can you imagine the scene and how frightening that had to be? Well, the queen mother finds out about this and she shows up. And there in the passage, she says to Belshazzar, she says, you know, I know somebody that can tell you what that means. He served your grandfather and told him the meaning of visions. She says, in him are the spirits of the gods. What she didn't understand is, in Daniel, is the spirit of the living God. Now, Daniel would be about 80 years old at this point in time. And so Belshazzar, so desperate, decides to call for Daniel to come. And Daniel comes. I'm going to read to you out of the scriptures. I don't have this posted just because there's a lot of passages to look at today. But listen to this. This is Daniel chapter 5, verse 17. He shows up uh, to speak to the king. And he says in verse 18, Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those that he wanted to kill, and he also spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor and disgraced those that he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, and he was brought down from his royal throne, then he was stripped of his glory. He was driven from the human society. He was given a mind of a wild animal, and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched to the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. Now let's continue looking at what he says. He says, You are his successor, old Belshazzar, and you knew all this. Yet you have not humbled yourself. For you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups of the temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and who controls your destiny. Now, why, why was it that Belshazzar and his nobles were so blind to what was being written on the wall and what it meant? And we're going to look at that in just a few moments. 
I want to suggest to you that what blinded them was their pride. It's the very thing that I'm convinced is blinding people today, and especially our leaders, to what is happening in our world today. I mean, after all, when you think about what's happening in our nation, you think about what's happening in our world today, don't you scratch your head sometimes and wonder how can anybody not realize things are chaotic, things are falling apart. How can we keep partying on, so to speak? Well, things are in such a mess. It's because pride blinds us. Pride blinds a person. In 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, don't you realize that Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers? What is pride? Oswald Chambers defines sin and pride this way. He says, it is my claim to my right to myself. It is my claim to my right to myself. Boy, does that speak loudly today. We hear that all the time. It's all about me. I have my rights, and I have my rights to myself and to do as I please. That, my friends, is pride. Tim Keller goes on, and he says this about pride. He says, pride is simply not seeing that absolutely everything you have and everything you are is a gift of grace that the reason you're Nebuchadnezzar or the reason you're the CEO or the reason you have accomplished whatever you've accomplished is the sheer grace of God. If you can't handle that, you're proud. Wow. (laughs) Now, instead of thinking about other people for a moment, think about yourself. Has or is pride blinding you or someone you love or your kids or someone you know? Is it blinding you from reality? Are you aware that everything you have, your success, everything you have in terms of your possessions, your abilities, your station in life is a gift from God? Do you wake up with that sense of humility every day that says, if not for the grace of God? Or is there pride that's kind of creeped in to where it's I and my and what I've accomplished? Pride blinds us from seeing the truth and it's destructive as a result. You know, one of the stories that comes to my mind is well-known. It's the story of the Titanic. Obviously, movies have been made by it, about it. Books have been written on it. Explorers have gone down, and, you know, we've seen pictures of it underwater there. But, you know, the Titanic continues to stand as a monument to the absurdity and the finality of what happens when pride takes over. It took 12,000 men two years to build that ship. And when it left Belfast, Ireland, it was the biggest ship to ever sail. And in fact, the captain made a statement. He said, this ship is unsinkable. Not even God himself could sink this ship. And we know what happened in the cold Atlantic, don't we? ran into icebergs, and he refused to change course. Pride, and the Titanic sank. There's this idea that if pride is allowed to lead us, it'll sink our lives. It'll destroy not only our lives, but our families. It'll destroy our country. It's going to destroy this world. So we go back now to the book of Daniel, chapter 5, And Daniel begins to interpret the writing on the wall. He says, so God has sent his hand to write this message. This is the message that was written. 
Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is what these words mean. Men means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given, he says here, to the Medes and to the Persians. What we know from history is that the Medes and Persians were very smart people. They basically engineered ditches to take the water away from the river that actually went under the walls and through Babylon. And so once the water was vacated out of the way, they just simply came in under the city and killed Belshazzar and his nobles and, and took over as a result of that. So the question becomes, do you believe that there's going to be a judgment someday? Do you believe that someday pride is going to catch up to this world, catch up to people, and God will bring judgment as a result? The reason I ask that question is because quite by accident, I was listening to a rabbi the other day, and um, he was uh, sharing, he's not a believer, but he's a very wise man, and he was sharing how he was giving a speech to about 400 adults in a room. And in, in the midst of his speech, he, he asked them a question. He took a survey. He said, how many of you believe that there is going to be a judgment at the end of your life, at the end of time? And he said, nearly every hand of the 400 went up in the air. And then he said, I asked this next question. He said, how many of you have children who believe that at the end of their life, there's going to be judgment or judgment in this world? And he said he was shocked. He said only about, and it's very unscientific, but he said only about one out of every five hands was raised in the room. And then he made the comment, here's proof that parents once again have not passed on values. Now, you can make it that whatever you want, but here's what I'd like to challenge you to do. I'd like to challenge you to ask your children, your grandchildren, your friends, if they believe that judgment will come at the end of their lives, if judgment's going to come at the end of time. You might be fascinated by how they respond to that. See, it doesn't matter whether I believe judgment's going to happen or not. The fact is, God says this world and our lives will be judged. The Bible says to be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord, and all of us are going to give a response to God about how we've lived our lives. Now, those of us who are saved by God's grace, obviously, we're not going to be judged on our works in terms of our salvation. Our salvation is by grace. It can't be earned. It can't be deserved. But I think what a lot of times we forget is that even as believers, we're going to be held accountable to what did we do with what God gave to us. So in light of all of this, the question becomes, how then are we supposed to live in this crazy, chaotic, prideful world that we are in, the society we're in today? And I want to suggest to you a couple of things. They're very simple. They're very short. They're already implied in everything we've talked about. But the first one is simply this. Trust God with your whole being. Trust in God. Trust in his word with everything that is in you. If you go back to Daniel chapter 5, and you come to verse 17, Daniel responds to the king, and he says to him, 
keep your gifts or give them to someone else, but I will tell you what the writing means. In other words, what Daniel is saying is, look, I, I'm not looking to become the third ruler. This kingdom's not going to last anyway. I, I'm not looking for a robe. I'm not looking for, you know, a gold medallion around my neck. I'm not here to give you my opinion, King Belshazzar. I'm here to tell you this is what the Lord says. You and I can find such hope and such comfort in these days that we're living in by trusting in who God is and what God has said. Are you anchored today in the word of God? Secondly, pay attention to pride and humble yourself. Pay attention to pride and humble yourself. Don't let it creep into your lives. Paul says, I die daily. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. There's a sense in which every day we must die to pride because all of us, all of us are infected with it. And if you don't pay attention to it, it quickly and so easily blinds you and takes over. Every day in my life, I get up and in my quiet time, one of the things I do is I slay, I try to slay my pride. I surrender my pride to the Lord. I surrender any sense that I've accomplished this. I surrender my mind, my will, my emotions, my body, my finances, my relationships, my health, everything. I surrender you to the Lord. With Dale Church, I surrender our leaders, our staff. Nothing belongs to me. It all belongs to God. And thirdly, understand the difference between religion and faith. Religion is my way, my efforts to find significance in eternity. And usually it's by my works or some gods that I worship. Faith is responding to what God declares to me is the way to find significance and have hope and truth in a life to come. So put all your trust in God. Daily die to yourself. And thirdly, live by faith, not by religion. Live by faith in what God has declared and what God has said and what he's done for you and me in Christ Jesus. But there's one more thing in this passage I want to look at. I had never really paid attention to this before until I was reading some of my favorite theologians and pastors. It was so helpful, so insightful, what Earl Ellis taught me, what Tim Keller taught me in this passage, and I want to share it with you. By the way, Earl Ellis is a, is a theologian, a commentator. Let's talk a little bit about the handwriting on the wall. When you go back to the book of Daniel and that hand appears and the finger writes those words on the wall, that finger and those words were judgment, weren't they? Judgment of Belshazzar and judgment of Babylon for their pride and their rebellion and their arrogance. When you turn over to the New Testament, and particularly to excuse me, Luke chapter 10, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends the 70 out to do ministry. And it says in verse 17, when the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. In other words, Jesus has sent them out in his name and his power to do everything that Jesus was doing. Heal, um, deliver, cast out, raise up, encourage. I mean, they were like little Jesus who were out there just in his power and his name doing 
wonderful and powerful and miraculous things. And they came back and they were so excited about what was happening. Well, what was happening? Well, when you go to Luke chapter 11, Jesus is in the midst of teaching many different things. It says that one day he cast a demon out of a man and it really upset the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And they said, you know, the way that he does this, they said in verse 15, is he can cast out demons because he gets his power from Satan. Wow, blasphemy. I mean, that's like taking the, the cups there in Daniel that belong to the worship of God and toasting demons with it. Now you're looking at Jesus and saying, you, you know, the power you use to cast out demons is from Satan himself. And then Jesus goes on, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, you guys are crazy. Why would Satan cast himself out? It makes absolutely no sense. And then he says this in verse 20. He says, but I am casting out demons by the finger of God. That's the literal translation. Some other translations say by the power of God, but it's the finger of God, literally in the Greek. But if I am casting out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. Wow. Earl Ellis says that that is nothing more than Jesus reinterpreting what happened in Daniel when that finger wrote judgment on the wall. Jesus, in essence now, is saying that his church, his followers, are now God's finger, writing on the walls of society his grace, his mercy, that his kingdom has broken in. Look, he says, of what's happening. Look what the 72 went out and did. Look how the kingdom of God is breaking in on humanity. But only those with eyes to see, eyes of faith, eyes of belief, eyes of trust can recognize the handwriting of grace on the wall. Listen, you and I, says Earl Ellis, you and I, says Tim Keller, we are God's fingers on the wall these days. Are we legible? Can people see that the kingdom of God has broken into this world? Can people see that there's hope, that there's forgiveness, that there's salvation, that there's mercy? I just returned recently from ministry on behalf of our church in Nepal and India. I'm going to tell you more about it next weekend. I really hope you'll tune in or join us at one of our campuses because I've got some amazing stories to tell you of how God is at work through the ministries that we are supporting there through TTI. But it wasn't in Nepal or India that God said something rather significant to me. It was when I was at O'Hare Airport transferring from the C terminal to the B terminal. If you've ever been there, there's this escalator and it's a really long escalator. It goes way up and I was on that escalator and I'm going up and there's just boatloads of people going down over the C terminal and there are these very steep steps in between. And as I was going up, I looked over and I saw this woman about in the middle of the steps. She had a bag and she had her hand suitcase with her and she was paralyzed. And what I mean by that is she, she was so scared. You could just tell by the look on her face that she had kind of lost her sense of balance and she was, she was groping. She was hanging on to the rail. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where you feel like you're going to fall 
and panic takes over. It's very unnerving. It's very unsettling. And I, and I, and I looked at her and I felt, you know, here are these people going up, here are these people going down all around her. And there she sits, panicked. What is she going to do? And I thought to myself, I can't jump the escalator right now. That would probably make things even worse. But when I get to the top, I'm going to just have to leave my bag and I'm going to run down those stairs because I want to help this poor woman out. My goodness, she's paralyzed there. I, 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 the look on her face, it was just horrible. I felt so bad for her. And then I noticed a young couple coming down the stairs and I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder if they'll bypass her or help her. And I'm so happy to tell you that as I got toward the top and looked back, they stopped, picked up her bag, and then led her down the rest of the stairs. And I watched, and you could just see this confidence in her because somebody was pointing out the way. Somebody was there to walk her down. And I thought to myself, that is a picture of our society today. People are going about their business up and down and up and down. But in the middle of all that, there are people who are paralyzed by what's happening in the world right now. They don't understand what is going on and why it's going on and how come nobody can see what is happening. The question is, is there anybody that will stop? Is there anybody that will come alongside of them and tell them about Jesus and tell them about the truth and tell them about hope? That's what it means to live by faith in a secular world. That's what it means to live by faith in a world filled with all kinds of gods that ultimately don't bring hope. Will you be God's finger in somebody's life today? Not by what you simply say, but also by what you do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the book of Daniel. Thank you so much for helping us know how to live in these days I pray and ask that we would see ourselves as your fingers in this world today, that we would write a message of love and grace and hope, that we would be aware, Lord, of the people who are frozen in place, frightened by what is happening, that we would not keep quiet, but we would make known that the kingdom of God indeed has broken in, and those who put their faith in you will live forever with you and in you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Join me next weekend. I really am excited to share with you some miraculous stories that I had an opportunity to be a part of when I was in Nepal and India. It's going to just go so well with our next message of Daniel in the lion's den. We'll see you then.